dissection uh, and identified um, loci that control seed protein content and water use efficiency. Um, he was also on the team of scientists that sequenced the soybean genome. Um, and he is a fellow of uh, the AAAS, uh, the CSSA, and the ASA. Um, so with that being said, uh, let's give a warm welcome to uh, Dr. Specht. Can everybody hear me out there? So, okay, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and I do want to thank all the sponsors. They're listed on the uh, back of your program here, and especially the graduate students who invited me to speak. So, um, I'm every once in a while during my talk, you may see the inflection in my voice raise a little bit because I do that, and I did that in class. That was to keep the students awake. So, I hope you don't mind that. <laughs> That's not really the reason I did it. It's to emphasize the point, but. Uh, I think what I'm going to do here is add a little bit of humor in places because some of the things you're, I'm saying are, you're going to be happy about and other things you're going to be glum about. So let's get started. First of all, I want to, this presentation is really on behalf of the hundreds of soybean breeders in the world and the USA because what I'm addressing are their accomplishments. Just a little bit about funding. I don't have uh, USDA on here and they, they gave us a fund uh, a long time ago to, or, Proved a grant a long time ago that got our marker work with Perry Cregan and Randy Shoemaker, and I started. But since then, we've been supported by USB, Nebraska Soybean Board, North Central, and of course the University of Nebraska. Now, soybean is a relatively young crop in the U.S. Uh, you can see this is the harvested acreage on this side, acreage on the outside, hectares on the outside. And by the way, I'll have both metric and English units on most of my slides. But you can see they really didn't start taking off in the U.S. until uh, the late uh, 1930s and 40s. And, and then they really took off until they hit a peak in, in 1979. And then, then thereafter they fell a bit, and now they're back up to where they were. But I put these red arrows over here to indicate that Brazil is now beating us in those situations. Okay. This is, if you remember, if I go back, this is an arrow here, and I'll show you the two maps. This is what the production was, harvested acres, generally most in the U.S., 1979, 80, that's what, 23 years ago? That's what it was. You can see there's a lot of um, um, packing of acreage down here and really little there. But now you see the change. In fact, because of global warming, I don't show you a Canadian map here, but they're growing almost as many soybeans now as we are in the northern tiers. Now, let's just get right to the point. Here's the trend line from 1924. This is on-farm soybean yields. This would be recorded by the um, NAS people down here. And this, obviously, each of these points is kind of like a, a normal curve of farmers that report in. So you'll have some that have greater yields than that and some that. But this is the mean for the U.S. averaged over all the states. That year is down here, seed yield, bushel per acre, English metric over here. And I've got both equations in English and metric here. So if you look at this particular trend line, it's 0.346 bushels per acre per year. That's the total for all on-farm improvement, including the breeding inputs and the agronomic inputs, plus the interaction between those. So when I first did this, so this is what this average, I put this number up here as a final. That's what this line represents. So when I started looking at this area back in 1981, 
I, I went back and re got my data and replotted. I want you to watch this number because this is the linear value for on the seed per bushel axis. Of course, this is the linear there. But this was the report I made in 1981. And just watch this line and look at this number as I go through it. So I made this uh, report at the ESA meetings in Atlanta, Georgia. Note that number jumped up in 1998 when I reported the same numbers with more time in Baltimore. And when I presented this uh, a couple of years ago at the STA meetings in Chicago, you see it jumped up here. So I'm going to back up just again so you can see that. Watch this number right here, 31, 33, 35. That to me tells me there's a little bit of curvature in that line because it's increasing over time. So the one thing we have to keep uh, reminded of is this may be the glum part I was going to talk about. There is a biological yield limit established by first law of thermodynamics when you're converting light energy into food. Now the question is the efficiency with which you can do that. That's another story. So really what we should be looking at is actually logistic projections. And I'll give you just a common example down here where the key features are, okay, what's the maximum you can get with the, rate, with the inputs? And then of course the half the inflection point where we go from acceleration to deceleration and of course uh, um, where that occurs left to right. Okay, and the K value, of course, is a constant. Or not the K value, but the R is a constant. So let's go back here again as our linear line. If you do the math, you'll see it up here in Proxas or anything. You can use the information ECI information criteria, which assesses the goodness of fit of a model relative to the complexity of that model. You want to explain as much as you can, but also use the minimum amount of parameters. This is this is the law of parsimony, you know, uh, Occam's razor, so to speak, okay? So let's take a look at that. When you take that data set and that data set only, no other assumptions, and assume a logistic projection. So this is what you come up. So you're using the same data, but you have a logistic model here that I just described, and as you can see up here. And, and the AIC criterion here says that this model is a better fit than the linear model. And this is a famous equation down here for math in terms of by the Japanese guy that's listed down there in the name of this. So I'll come back to that later. So you can see this number up here is 141. If you decrease that number, this model is better because it takes into account both the model complexity and the amount of fit. Now what I've done also is try out another model. So basically what we're looking here is this part of the curve. And what that curve says that the, um, the inflection point here based on a simple model, is going to be in 2008. That's past us already. So we're five years or more onto this side already. But we can't. The model doesn't predict that. It only predicts this first part. So, uh, and I also noted that there's more uh, environmental variability here with climate change or whatever you want to assume. And that if you use a segmental model, which is only the first part of the uh, logistic curve, but with a breakpoint, you have a yield before the breakpoint and a yield after, and, and then you determine what year that breakpoint is. And so you see this number, the actually criteria number, is actually lower. So it's the best model given you have here. So apparently in the course of on-farm soybean improvement, we were steady here, and then because of some technological advancement, either genetic agronomy or both, we've jumped to a new level. So I. So you can see right here it was 320.32 bushels per acre per year here, but now it's 0.438. Okay. 
So obviously we've had some technological input that has improved to you. But let's just take a look at what, where that comes from. One is genetic technology, soybean breeding, if you will, continual release and rapid adoption of producers, more yield potential, uh, protection of current yield, as the, as the prior speaker talked about. Agronomic technology, obviously that's improved yield too because you have more effective crop management system, decision aid tools, and field equipment. And I think what we all forget, either breeders or agronomists, is there's synergism here that applies. Whenever you have an interaction, it's not necessarily negative if the fact that the modern agronomy and the modern genetics connect with each other to give you more yield than you would expect based on additivity alone. So what are breeders' goals are? That was mentioned by the prior. I list them as productivity. I want more yield potential per se. And I distinguish between yield potential and yield here because you want to develop varieties that will yield better in any environment, but their potential may be suppressed in some. Okay. Likewise, protection down here and quality. This is something Tom Clemente does well here. He's actually making soybeans ready for fish food, right, Tom? <laughs> Actually, he wants to feed all breeders to the fishes, you know, so <laughs> just a joke there. But, but the other thing that you notice I don't list abiotic stress up here because any factor I figure that's a resource for crop consumption, consumption really can't be called a stress. You just don't have enough of it. It's not a stress, in my opinion. What other factors? Rising CO2 went from 315 when I was in junior high all the way to 396 and actually touched 400 here and it's November high and May minimum. And I've calculated, and others have too, that it accounts for about 0.05 to 0.07 bushels per acre per year. Not very much, but constant. Multiply that by 40 years. Bingo, you got a pretty good number. <laughs> also, uh, soybean, and this doesn't apply to other crops, soy corn rotation is replacing continuous corn, and actually both corn and soybean yields are better off for it. They go up, and of course, soybean gets on the better ground that corn used to dominate. <laughs> and of course, this is all a critical one down here that we refer to. That's uh, we need funding to do both curiosity-driven basic research and mission-based applied research because those discoveries are vastly translated into R&D that benefit the consumers who are the producers. So let's take a look at this. How much? Genetic technology underpins on-farm, so you need a knowledge of what the annual rate of genetic gain is and compare that with the on-farm gain. And so we did an estimate of that recently. I'm going to step back a little bit to show what we knew in the past. Did a study back in 84 where we looked at about 200 cultivars and we uh, measured their yield. This is the release year down for the release year of the cultivar. This is the yield of the individual cultivars by dots. And these, before 1943, were basically plant introductions brought from China, improved, uh, cured, purified, and then released to farmers. So they're just Chinese lines that were brought here and used. After that, soybean breeders decided to adopt what corn breeders were already doing for a while, and that's make matings and try to generate crosses or projects in those matings that were superior to both parents. And so in effect, you see, if you look at these regression lines here and here, here and here, what you see is basically a quantum jump occurred when they did that, when they shifted from plant introduction to plant breeding, basically. Equivalent to the switch from open pollinated corn to hybrid corn, in my opinion. Okay. 
Here's just the bottom line value. I said it amounted to 25% average over all these maturity groups. Not a bad figure for a quantum jump. Wilcox was the last one to publish something on this before we did, and he gave us this values here. And again, on-farm improvement is 0.35 bushels per acre, and this is the conversion factor. So those numbers up here that he's given translate between 0.32 and 0.46 if you do it on a bushel per acre basis. So they're in line with the on-farm improvement, but I'll come back to that. Soybeans, we did an experiment. Soybeans, of course, are maturity group dependent. They have to be adapted because of the photo period and flowering. Corn, you do it on a GDD basis, but in soybeans, we do it on a maturity group basis. You can see there's a series of uh, maturity groups here, depending on the latitude and what photo period we have it in spring and midsummer. We're going to concentrate only on these three for the study I'm going to describe next. That's the 9th, 2011 data. And right, these areas right here probably account for the majority of soybean production, but these account for a significant other. Right now, uh, those others in terms of yield at least, uh, so the total three account for about 75 to 80 percent of, of soybean production. So what we did is we took maturity group two, three, and four soybean cultivars that had been released in, back in the 1920s all the way to today, and they were both public ones and proprietary ones contributed by Syngenta, Monsanto, and Pioneer. Now, because of an MTA, I'm not going to tell you their names, but you're just going to see black spots for everything, okay? Blocks. So the uh, maturity group twos were grown at these locations, one of which is in Nebraska at me, and of course, and some in Canada over there were two adopted. Uh, there were another uh, set, uh, whoops, went the wrong way here. 59 or so, there were 60 before, 59 grown here in that zone at those locations, 15. And then maturity group four, there was another down here in those regions. So we were growing these twos, threes, and fours, these historic sets, at the locations they were adapted to. Here's the genetic gain. A lot of soybean breeders and agronomists here. We also took the opportunity to use that information. Brian, I, and Dave Sleeper got the, the test organized, and Randy contributed the old varieties, and Keith was a graduate student that worked for Brian Beers that helped us summarize it, and George, of course, was in this project, too. So what did we come up with? Again, a plot of seed yield versus release year. Uh, those are the circles or the maturity group two averages over all the locations they were tested in two years. And so what you see down here, this is the straight line. If you use a linear regression, the broken line is the segmental um, linear two-segment two, two model. Okay? So you can see that. You can see if we use the breakpoint model, it shows that the breakpoint occurred about 1968. But those have standard errors around them, okay? You also can see that if you apply the AIC criteria, uh, the uh, segmental model is 99% better, according to the AIC criteria, than the linear model. So this is what we have to assume. Here's maturity group three data. The breakpoint here was 1964, plus or minus is an error around that. And again, you can see that uh, the breakpoint here model is much better. It's 97% better than the other when you do the AIC criterion. Here's maturity group four. You didn't see how it fell down here, but I'll show you that in a minute. It also shows a break around 1971. And, and a, oops, sorry. And, Again, 
not as much as support for the for the segmental model, but clearly about five times greater support. So that's the data. If we put them all together, you see this, and you see this are the breakpoints. Anybody want to yell out what the year the Plant Variety Protection Act was passed? 1970, right? Okay, pretty good fit here with the data because we're checking the original varieties. The breakpoint for the U.S. It was 1983, but you have to allow time for these cultivars to get out there before their impact shows up. So it might be 10 years later in the on-farm yield production before you see it. So clearly you see something here. You see maturity group two and three are pretty good, but four is a little lower, and four is down here. And of course, the yields are highest if you look at these numbers down here, right, in twos and threes. The maturity group four zone right here is actually not a not that good a place to grow soybeans. And here's the data that shows that if I break out the U.S. data by states, you can see we're back to the 0.3461 bushels per acre here. Just considering the maturity group two, threes, and fours, they pretty much, because they occupy 80% of the acres, they're pretty close to the USA. But if I break out twos and threes from fours, you can see that twos and threes are better than the U.S. And that's why soybeans migrate. They migrate to the area where they're most profitable and most yield, right? Except for other considerations of the farm program. Now, all breeding has consequences, no matter what you're doing. So you've improved yield by a third of a bushel per acre per year. What you see is the protein goes down, the oil goes up. Now, as much as people like to say, my variety yields have protein as good as the rest. They're not dealing with long-term data, so they can't show that. Of course, I don't show all the dots here, but the question is, are those outliers and don't repeat the next year? So the key question here is that protein has gone down. There's a reason for that. Protein is more expensive for a plant to make than lipid. And the physiologists that published a few years ago that said lipid should be more expensive than protein were wrong. They didn't figure out that storing protein in a seed requires a lot extra energy beyond just equations compared to storing lipids in, in lipid-lined uh, uh, membrane bodies. So, so it's not surprising then that protein would go down and yield goes up when you're putting selection on, or oil goes up when you're putting selection on yield. So Brian looked at these data, my cohort who were publishing this, and said, okay, we have 23 kilograms per hectare per year yield here, and this is what breeders have done. Breeders have underpinned all on-farm improvement. <laughs> now, soybean guys out there, don't break your arm by patting yourself on your back, because I'm going to tell you that ain't true. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to that. So this is the genetic gain rates, and that's another issue about genetic gain. It's entirely dependent upon the environment in which you measure it. So these are the low environment estimates of genetic gain, and these are the higher environment estimates of genetic gain. What you see as you allow for more expression of genetic potential in these better environments, you're seeing that your rates go up, which implicitly tells me we have much more genetic potential in these varieties than we do down here. Well, I shouldn't say these varieties, because these are the same varieties that were used to get the genetic gain, all of them used to get the genetic gain in maturity group three, four here, all those uh, 49 
and so on as we go. So each point represents, within its maturity group, all the varieties and the computation of the genetic rate of gain for those varieties, say, at this very low level here in our test environments across the USA. So hopefully I made that clear. So this is a single location estimate of genetic gain for all of the maturity group fours, just as this is the same varieties tested for genetic gain for all maturity group fours. So you can see the genetic rate of gain that you come up with is entirely dependent on the potential that's allowable to be expressed in a variety in an environment. Now, breeders have long been in a love affair with this, and I don't know the reason why. I do know the reason why, and I thought, well, now we'll have a chance to prove why it's useless. Okay. <laughs> so Brian put these slides together, and he indicated uh, in most cases. If you measure a single cultivar out of 20 or 30 or 40, and then you use the rest of the cultivar means to estimate error yield so you can plot that cultivar's yield against all other cultivars, you get these kind of regression coefficients. And the thought was that a stable one was more useful as compared to one that was less stable or less stable on both sides. Okay. So I said, let's, let's test it. If we look at the stability coefficient for each variety, well, each of the releases over the years, did stability change at all? His hypothesis. Mine was new cultivars are actually less stable, but that means they're more productive. Okay. Because obviously the coefficient there is changing going from wherever one is on this scale to greater than one or less than one. Okay, because we're calculating the stability coefficient, not the yield. And so the question is, is this the kind of stability analysis you get where uh, you know you have one like this and one like this? And is it new cultivars versus old cultivars? Or like I was saying to Brian, it's more like this. That the new cultivars beat the hell out of the old ones all the time. Except way down here where it doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> You're going to go broke down here no matter what you plant. And so what did the data tell us? So this is the newest cultivars. This is the oldest. You can see right here they don't overlap. This is steeper regression line than this. So this one's going to have a greater stability number than this. Here's for maturity group three. By the way, each six points in there are the six cultivars that we determined that overall had the highest yields uh, in the overall analysis versus those that had the lowest. So what you can see here, same thing applies there. And maturity group four, which consistent where they're growing the soybeans down there in environments that are very low uh, productivity for expression, you can see maybe you'll get a crossover down there. But for the most part, the newest cultivars will beat the oldest ones. And if you go back and read the literature, Arouse had a very good paper in the Journal of Experimental Botany that showed that same thing applied in wheat. So this is what what New cultivars, yeah, they're less stable. But I'd rather grow one of these than these any time. And so would a producer. So here's the stability analysis calculated for each of the cultivars. And you can see as we've moved up and release, the stability, uh, uh, stability parameter of the coefficient has changed from less than 1 to greater than 1. So that particular Finlay Wilkinson can go in the trash can of ancient history, okay? Because what's important is this. <laughs> right? 
And here's again repeated here just so you can see it in color. So I'd like to come back to this, the genetic gain are greater when you, so when we measure genetic yield gain at, in this environment, we get this, when we measure it, we get those, and so on. So as we, as we move agronomics, and maybe my colleague Patricio is here, as we move to higher levels of yield by agronomic, better agronomic management, we get better expression of the resident genetic yield potential. So I don't go over this uh, compared to old cultivars, new cultivars, greater yield, a little later maturity because, because we're getting longer summers because of global warming. So our newest releases tend to take advantage of that. And some other things, we've seen some of these greater disease resistance. I didn't talk about that, but there's another paper coming out that isolated the ones that were resistant to certain diseases versus non-resistant. Greater total biomass. And one, the first example of synergism between breeding and agronomics right down there when it comes to planting those. I'm going to go in time where I can. And the battery may have gone dead here, I don't know. Not popping up either way. Can you change the page for me? Okay, thanks. So what about agronomic technology? I've already said that you'd be a little naive to assume that all on-farm improvement comes from breeding. It doesn't. So, but this is more difficult to unmingle the changes that have occurred in agronomic improvement with the changes that have occurred in breeding. But so, that's working now. So, I don't know why it wasn't stuck. I'm just going to talk about one of them. This is a list of it, and you can go to the the website to get this list. But the early planting is the lowest hanging fruit on this. Uh, agronomic practice. So if you look here, study we did, picture date, 626, 2003, 624, 2004, you know the longest day, or the longest day of the year is around June 21st, June 22nd. So we didn't, the pictures was a few days after that. These are the planning dates of these demo strips we put out there. Uh, early May, mid-May, late May, and mid-June, about 16 days apart. And that's what they look like when we took the pictures. Uh, basically, that year in 2003, if you looked at this sweep across here, these yielded a quarter bushel per acre for every decrease in one day of planting dates. In 2004, which is a better year for growing soybeans, the, the, uh, the cost for delaying soybean planting date was five-eighths of a bushel. So if you translate this number into $12, bushel, $12 per bushel right now, for every day you don't have soybeans in the ground, you better take th three bucks out of your pocket and burn it, because that's the opportunity cost you lost by not adopting that. Everybody awake now? <laughs> okay. So that's the opportunity cost. Down here it's even greater. That's about seven or eight bucks down here, and that's just for a single acre, one acre. If you have a thousand, you better take three thousand dollars out of your pocket and burn it. Okay. And why is that? If you go back here, I'm going to treat these numbers in the colors here, and you're going to see this. This is the photo period during the year from January to the longest day here. In, in Lincoln, it's 15 hours and 10 minutes. These are the planting dates. And so you can see if you plant here and your crop comes up, your plants are starting to gather light even before the longest day of the year. And remember, the job as a producer is to harvest the sun, because that's the incoming input energy for photosynthesis. You plant here, you're only going to capture what's left in the season. So if you look here, these guys are almost 
collecting all of the light by the longest day of the year, where these guys over here have hardly started. In fact, if you look here, they're not even covering the rows, so the transfer, the transpiration and the evaporation will be even higher. So this is when you plant late, that's how much you can use for photosynthesis. And when you plant early, this is how much. That should be pretty clear, I would think. And of course, if you plant later, you're not going to use as much water. But that means you're going to not do as much transpiration. And that means because transpiration and yield are entirely linearly linked to each other, you're not going to get as much yield either. So it's better to use more water if it's available. In fact, if you go back here, you can see once you cover the ground, you're going to capture the rain. Plus, you're going to use more of the rain that comes in earlier that could have run off. And from my colleague Purcell in Arkansas, you can see that when you look at the data here, and we just look at Illinois, it's much more water use efficient to use water with earlier planting. So clearly, the advantage of planting early comes, comes well with the water condition conservation as well. So crop ET is just defined as evaporation of water from, from soil and wet surface, but transpiration is a term for the escape of water from soybean leaves. For every CO2 that comes in a stomate of soybean in mid-season, 400 water molecules go out. The plants use a lot of water. And so you want to use it as conservatively as possible by covering that soil surface area to eliminate this by doing this to get mostly T. Because T relates to yield. E does not. All right, have farmers adopted this? If you look back in 1980 and you look at the curve of the planting date progress from the day of the season in 1980, they were planting a heck of a lot earlier. In 1912, they were planting a lot earlier. Those are the curves. You go and check the plot these data points right here. It's 50% progress, and you get this. So on average, and by the way, Patricia was the one that gathered some of this data for me. What you can see here is producers have advanced planting date by a half a month. So they're not stupid. They can they know that. But when I look at Illinois data, they're not so much doing that because they have a different agronomist there, I guess, and don't have me. <laughs> Here's what it looks like. Here's Illinois. Here's Nebraska. Okay. So final final thing: genetic by agronomic technology. There's a synergism here. Modern era cultivars will have greater yield potential and yield than prior era cultivars on that on the basis of that. So I don't think there's any argument that data shows that here. They also have resulted in on-farm yields having greater productivity, but that's come from like agronomic practices to allow greater expression of the genetic yield potential. And the yield difference between modern and old cultivars is greater when both are grown in the modern. Now, that, when, we first, when I first published some stuff about this back in the 80s, I got some pushback from people saying, you're not being fair to the old cultivars when there's an interaction. I said, why should I be fair to something I'm never going to grow again? <laughs> so it is G by A interaction, but it reflects the synergism between efforts that have improved genetic yield potential and agronomic potential. And you can see that here. In this couple of my releases, as you raise uh, uh, high yield production environments, you get more expression. So what are we going to do in the future? How's my time? Okay. Well, uh, certainly, uh, DNA sequencing, and by the way, that shows that, by the way, before I finish that, it shows that agronomic improvements have accounted for also a significant share. And by my estimation, 
It's two-thirds genetics and breeding and one-third agronomic and physiology improvement. I'll come back to that just at the end. So these are some of the things. Uh, first thing I started when we sequenced the Williams 82, that was a greatest thing since sliced bread because now we can operate more effectively once we know where, um, where markers are and where annotated genes are. Just completed a 50,000 genetic SNP marker thing that was just uh, released here this spring. Uh, and also, the Soybean Board is funding two major projects that, that uh, look at the identification of QTLs in the NAM project, Nested Association Mapping, which they've done in corn. And ultimately, I've provided them with the DNA sequence of all those milestone cultivars. And they're generating at Iowa this DNA sequences of all those major milestone cultivars. To find out where breeders left their signatures in the soybean genome. Okay. I'll repeat that again. Breeders, when selecting for yield, had to leave some sort of signature in the genome. And we want to find out what in the hell that is and where it's at. So those are the two things right down there. Wendy? Ah, just got the data to Aaron Lorenz, who's working with me on this project. And this was the first. Uh, a principal component analysis, you see the color blue is North America, China down here, and a couple of different spots in Japan and, and South Korea. So we're working on that to see what the, you know, this is a lot of genetic diversity out there. Can we use any of it? You can see, if you compare these two charts, you can see the U.S. is just this much plus a few out there. So it's been sampled, but obviously there's a lot more out there to look at. Oops. And my interest, of course, has been in seed yield and protein. So I have seed yield on this axis, uh, seed protein and oil on this axis, and percentage protein runs at, uh, at, at a 0% um, zero, zero moisture basis will be in this zone, so, and oil will be down here on the scale. So for each accession of these in the collection, you'll have two points here, one for its oil and one for its protein. It's kind of a hard chart sometimes I try to get across to students. So if you look out here, whatever this point, whatever this uh, individual that's very, accession that's very high yielding, this was its protein and this was its oil. It's a double scatter plot, plot so to speak. Okay. And that's the line. So you can see here even in the collection, as you go to higher yields, oil goes up and protein goes down. But are there any outliers that we can use in which we can choose that have the same yield but higher protein, perhaps, and less impact on oil. So this is something Aaron and I are going to look at as well. The NAM project, uh, basically we took 40 parents uh, that were selected based on their diversity and made them to this high-yielding public cultivar, Iowa 3023. They have 140 lines in each of those 40 matings, so that's also up to 5,600. All, all those populations, plus checks, about 6,400 entries, were evaluated in single replica trials at those four states in two years, plus there were others that participated only through partial replica. And Brian calculates that the power to detect uh, uh, TPLs uh, with 95% confidence, uh, or that effect, I should say, is, can be as low as 3%. So. So this is the, we don't have one built for the NAM project. The NAM people used uh, 25, I think, and they made and the hub parent was B73. But this just gives you an idea. You sell them all the way to F5, and then you do it. The pedigrees. 
So knowing what the pedigrees are, we can trace back where in the heck did those breeder signatures come from eventually when we get the sequences all these. So we go back there and we selected these different cultivars. You can see their yield goes up. And by the way, this is a two-year uh, multiple location trial for these yields. So we damn well can predict with pretty good confidence that this is going to yield this, this yield this, this yield this, and so on. So if we sequence those, we should know what breeder signatures were implemented to change their genome. Likewise for maturity group three and four. And when I read this paper, back, or I didn't read it, I don't read human genetics, but I came across it in a report back in 2004 where they were looking for genetic signatures, breeder signatures, and they were using the human million marker plan to, to take a look at, at, at different areas of the population, those in Europe that grew, that adopted dairy farming versus those that did not. And so they're looking for the lactase gene, which is you're tolerant to lactase or you're not. And I saw that and saw this chart. And I'm like, why can't we do this in soybean? <laughs> and we now are, as I end my career, unfortunately. So what about the future? This is what Yogi Berra. Anybody, everybody know who Yogi Berra was? He was a, so, a baseball player, a catcher, then a manager who had a lot of quotes that doubled back on themselves, like this one, I never predict the future, and I predict I never will. <laughs> I love that. So we're going to look at the distant future. And you can see the predictions. Here's the data that we currently have that I operated on. And this would be the linear to infinity. This would be the logistic to its maximum, as determined by nonlinear application of logistic regression. That might not be the one, but we'll have to see how much we've developed. And this is the exponential equation, if you fit an exponential to that. And those would be the years, the pink lines and years in which we finally reach 60 bushel for the whole USA, with a linear method is going to be around, uh, what, 2060, with uh, ex uh, logistic maybe around uh, 2050, and of course with the exponential within you know uh, 2035 or so. And of course, there's been some predictions made. Uh, this is one with some rosy-colored glasses, I think, that says technology is going to get us to this point. And if I look at this point, I'll be around when that happens, so I can I can make a bet. This one I won't be, of course. <laughs> And these guys know nothing about agriculture, but just do modeling, economic modeling. Okay. And so they're predicting this down here. Now, if you're a betting man, I'm not one, but I know, I try to know as much as I can before I make a bet. And a bet bar, a bar bet by definition is two guys at a bar, one of them who's knowledgeable and the other who's a fool. <laughs> That's not saying these guys are, just say they have less knowledge. And you have a 99% certainty of winning that bet. That's what a bar bet is all about. Okay. So I'm willing to offer a $10,000 check to any of these people or any people out here that by, by the time we reach 60, we're going to be here or here rather than here or here. And these guys I don't consider worthy of betting because they don't know what they're talking about even though they published it in PMAS. So, anybody out there wants to take it, please out here if I'm gone, uh, I'll put it in some account and you can either cash it if you win or you can deposit it if, 
if I lose. <laughs> All right. What's the impact? How do you rate the performance of two disciplines, breeders and agronomists? And and I did soybean, and I'm going to come back to corn because soybean is the Cinderella and corn is the wicked stepsister, okay? <laughs> that's that's what been my opera, operandi, modus operandi. Okay, so here's corn. Obviously, they've traced corn back to 1960. Come along here and bingo. Geneticists discovered that you could generate both heterosis and general combining ability, and ever since then, it's been on upward, okay, as shown here. That's overall U.S. If you look at, uh, oops, too fast. If you look at Nebraska, you can see that trend started here for irrigated and, and here for dry land. So, as I said, dry land is going to limit your genetic potential. There's no way of getting around that. Whereas you can fully express it under irrigated conditions in Nebraska. So, you compare compare this. Oops, I'm sorry, my fingers getting with this. What we have for irrigated and soybeans. And this I use in a drought, so I'm not going to talk about that. So you can see the irrigated is quite high. There's also a break point here, and uh, I don't have the year on here, about, about 1985, apparently, where it's taken off faster. Oops, sorry. Now it wants to go fast, but it wasn't moving before at all. There. <laughs> can you move that for me? Oh, maybe I'm back here. Okay, here it is. So if you look at those two slides, and you can see this is corn yield improvement and soybean yield improvement. So soybean breeders out there, raise your hands. Just one? <laughs> Where are all my graduate students? <laughs> Our Georgia wasn't Here's the soybean one, here's the corn one. Okay. You look at that and you can have, as I did one time, a National Academy scientists say, Soybean breeders and agronomists are doing really what he said, and mainly I interpreted the piss poor job. Really? That's coming from a basic research brilliant science who's applied research stupid. Okay? So let's take a look at this in detail. Okay? So we know that soybeans yield three, three to three point times higher than corn. And so if you know that and you plot them on the same scales, I'll talk about why you should do that. You can see the line is linear. So now the soybean breeders out there can pat themselves on the back without breaking the arm. <laughs> okay. Because over 40 years, this ratio, 3.25 to 1, is applied under irrigation in Nebraska. 40 years. Obviously, it's been some ups and downs, but the whole trend line, which is what I use to eliminate the outlying years, look at the trend line. Now, why is that? So here's where I say, if you look up here, you can see it's 3.25. And also in a, on a bushel per acre scale over here, it's 3.25. Well, actually, this should be 3.0. I made a mistake there. But based on this kind of evidence, I've said down here that on-farm, irrigated Nebraska farm improvement, that's where you're looking at the genetic contribution in the presence of all, the best possible environment. Uh, when we do that, we can see that the genetic contribution, when I grew these tests in Nebraska under irrigation, I only had this rate of improvement, whereas the on-farm yield rate up here was 0.645. So this is the number I came up with. So breeders, soybean breeders can say, I, I definitely contributed two-thirds of every bushel per acre out there you have, producer. Okay. Whereas agronomists can say, I counted for one-third. At least based on my saying. 
And you can see that ratio has been stable over the years as well. So this is just a plot of that corn-soybean ratio. But you already saw that. This is for soybean. And so if we stop right here, we can see that uh, why is this occurring? Why This is what we put in a recent publication in a book that's going to come out from CSA. Why is corn and soybean, when you plot them on these three to one scales metrically, why are they equal? Well, corn has a jet engine, soybean has a prop. And that comes to photosynthesis, right? So, and we know that C4 makes for the best photosynthesis. And in fact, what we'd like to do is convert soybeans of Rayrick in from a C3 to a C4. Now, Tom's working on trying to improve its Calvin cycle enzymes, which will help out, and maybe even make us beat more corn, right, Tom? <laughs> but corn is also most of the carbohydrates. Soybean seed has this high protein and lipid that requires more photosynthetic energy to produce, and of course the nitrogen needed to reduce the nitrogen to protein. And both of them will use that carbon for lipid. Soybeans can also fix their own nitrogen, but it ain't free. Rhizobia costs the plant money, photosynthetic money. And so, and not only that, for corn, you have to provide nitrogen to corn. You don't have to do that to soybeans from what we've discovered. They can, as long as you plant it, corn-soybean rotation, soybeans can get all this extra nitrate it needs from what's left over. So here's the bottom line. C4 better than C3. C4 more but C4 requires two more photons for every carbon you fix. It's got to be grown in, when light intensities are high. That's why that evolved in the tropical savannas, because of the greater light period. C3 is less due to photorespiration. C4 system, you put your rubisco in the bundle sheet cells where it's not exposed. So this would be typical percentages, 84% carbo, 10% pro, and 5% and lipid for corn, and these would be those. So when I used to teach physiology, I told students, when you grow corn, you just get a bag of flour at the end of the year. When you grow soybeans, you get a smorgasbord. But they would say, yeah, Dr. Speck, but with corn, you can make ethanol or beer. <laughs> so I lost that argument right there. But corn always yields more, OK? So I'll finish up with this. Some notable quotes from Yogi Berra. One of them was, the future just isn't what it used to be. I love that one, because it's actually true for me now that I'm set almost 70 years old. <laughs> and by the way, the reason I'm wearing a coat and tie is because my brother once told me, you know, if, you, uh, if you're choosing only n times to wear such a thing, there'll be an n one plus time where you'll be, somebody else will dress you. And you don't want people saying, my, I never saw him in a coat and tie, and he either looks bad or worse because of that. <laughs> So that's why the future, of course, you heard this one. I love this one because that's why I decided to work with Aaron because I was lost even though I was making good time. I need some bright young people out here to carry that forward. And I also love this one because somebody mentioned about Tom Sinclair and, and Ken Kasten out there last night. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. <laughs> so always be aware of theory and not take an empirical look at practice because you'll get way off if you don't. Okay, with that, I'll conclude. Thank you all. Hopefully I'm right on time. Yeah, with that, we'll have time for a few questions so I can
walk around the room. Um, if you want to raise your hand, you can speak into the microphone. And by the way, I love to be challenged. So if you think I'm full of crap, stand up. <laughs> Part of the scientific arguments that make things better. Thanks, Jim, for your presentation. Uh, question, what do you estimate or calculate from all the various things that you've done might be the absolute maximum yield you might get if corn captured 100% of the light energy and soybeans the same? What do you think that maximum potential is? 360. For yield? That's on my interpretation. On beans or corn? With a near-perfect environment. I say when you say maximum, that's what I call probably the practical limit you could get if you had a cherry-picked environment and intercepted all the light, and you didn't change like lengthening the growing season on me yeah. or other things. Yeah. You got a For ton of soybean. It's 120. You have a ton of assumptions to make, but but the national corn growers this year or last year, a gentleman had over 400 bushel yield, and supposedly measured. Yeah. Well. My, my response to that is I'm a scientist. If you want to get those yields, see the magicians that did that. Because so it doesn't compute. And in fact, Larry Purcell is checked out the producer in Arkansas, and he doesn't have the dry matter to get those yields without having to have, assume, uh, uh, what do I call it, a 70% harvest index. Not likely. You checked out the dry matter on a piece of base, and that'll be coming out the top slider. Thanks for the presentation. My question is, why you compare this uh, yield potential of soybean with uh, maize? As we know that maize is a C4 plant, and it it will automatically have a great yield potential. Why not you compare the C3, uh, C3 plant with a C3 plant, like soybean with a rice, and then check the yield? My hearing is bad. Can you interpret the question for me? Uh, I couldn't hear it. Up here, so. My question is, when you compare the yield of soybean with maize, maize is a C4 plant, why do not you compare a maize with another C3 plant and check the yield difference? Yeah. My question is why you compare the C3 plant with C4 plant? Why not C3 plant with C3 plant? Thank you. Oh, sorry. I, I step away the, the static a little here. So. My question is, could you um, talk about what do you think about the hybrid solving in the future, the effect about the yield improvement? 
hybrid solid. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about hybrid solving? Okay, Thank good you. question, actually. Well, there are four considerations. First of all, you have to document heterosis. That's number one. And it has to be sufficient that the proprietary can, company can charge enough for it and the farmer will accept it in terms of how much yield they would get over a self-line. So that's an important thing. It's going to be hard to do the pollen transfer in soybean because it has to be done by insects. And when it rains in July, as I discovered with my male sterols, you don't get pollination in soybean. And, and when you think about the yield levels, you can plant a half bushel of corn per acre commercially or for producer fields, which means the number of fields you have to have in seed production versus the number of fields that are going to be in, in farm production, that ratio is a lot higher. In other words, how many how many seed production hybrid seed production acres do you have to have versus the number you're trying to sell to? So if you get your inbreds, female inbred, once pollinated, produce you know 150 or more bushels per acre, that's a lot different than if your female is a soybean and you're only producing 50 bushels an acre, and you got 80 million acres to supply in both cases. That means your seed production fields and soybean are going to take up a lot more space <laughs> to get the seed to the producers that want it if it's if it works. So those are my, I mean, it's been patented for a while by somebody. It was a two restorer system, but nobody's ever used it. Cytoplasmic restorer. We have one last question. Thank you, Jim, for the presentation. I don't know if you're familiar with the work in wheat on climate change, but one of the important predictions is that there will be decreased nitrate assimilation and we'll continue to see depressed protein concentration in the crop. Is there similar evidence in soybean that we'll see reduced protein levels as a result of increased CO2 concentration? Well, that may be true. For a cereal, but for a soybean that does nitrogen fixation, you have to remember for what nitrate it doesn't get, it trades off with nitrogen fixation. So if there is an effect like that, there would be a compensatory trade-off, I think. I, I don't know enough to do the experiments, but I would think that would apply. But So what you talk about would certainly apply for corn and, and cereals that, and other that can't do biological nitrogen fixation. But the biggest concern for me is that Nebraska may not be a soybean producing state in the future, they'll all be in Canada <laughs> because of the global warming trend. As you can see, uh, North Dakota went from just a few acres to a couple million acres in just a few years, and Manitoba went from zero in 1985 to, I think, 500,000 acres. I don't have the numbers with me, but I didn't show the Canadian charts. They're big-time soybean producers in Canada now, so if you look at the last record, so soybeans are going to move. If you can't grow them here, they'll grow them where they can. That's what I call adapting to climate change. That's happening even though the IPCC wants us to mitigate climate change. We're doing an awful lot right now to adapt to it. All right, let's thank Dr. Speck for his time. Okay, right now we